This is episode 486 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. After all the chaos and upheaval we've seen in our country this last few weeks that threatens literally to tear the very fabric of our republic apart and the church, we've come to a place in our lives where we must ask ourselves this question, what do I believe? That's right, what do I believe? What am I willing to die for? What is the mission and calling of my life? What means the most to me? What truth am I not willing to compromise on? Or as Martin Luther said when he was commanded to recant his belief in Christ in order to save his life, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Today we will ask ourselves the same question, what do I believe? And pray we have the faith to see this journey to the end. So come join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about what life was like in the early church, and we tried to make some comparisons compared to what life is like today. Back then, it seemed like that life was an all-consuming part of their life, and today, it's kind of something that we do. It's kind of an affiliation that we have. We go to this church or that church or this church. We have a tendency of not really committing to anyone. We're independent contractors. We, you know, we go to what basically feels good to us rather than maybe where the Lord wants us to be. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's even this lack of community is even being fostered even more with these lockdowns that we're having and people having to wear masks and, and I don't know about you, I have tinnitus, so it's hard for me to hear. And so therefore, I read a lot of lips. And so when I go to talk to somebody and have a mask on, I, I can't even understand what they're saying. But on top of that, have you noticed how much expression you lose hidden behind a mask? I mean, you're talking to someone and you can see sometimes a smile in their eyes, but it's the, it's the mouth, the face, the smile that kind of brings the joy. And, and we miss that. And uh, from what we're hearing, it's probably going to come back again and probably going to get worse. And, and so I, last week I started this and I started thinking, as Nick talked about, kind of placing yourself in here, what it would be like for you, what it was like in the early church and what were they were feeling. You know, Andrew came to faith before Peter did. And so Andrew may have been more spiritually astute. He may have been more of a seeker of the things of God. He recognized who Christ is. He went and told his brother Peter, and it took Peter a while to actually come to the place that Andrew was. And so Andrew's gone. He's not working. He comes back, and he's all excited about what's going on, and I've met the Messiah, and this is incredible. And, and maybe because of that, he was not allowed to participate in the synagogue on Sunday. Maybe some of his friends kind of shunned him. I don't know if you've noticed it this week. I talked to Krista about it when she went to work at the hospital. But prior to Wednesday, you vote for Biden. Somebody else votes for Trump. It doesn't matter. Now there's this wall. There's this gulf. There's this strangeness here that you feel. It's like they're looking at you like you're some sort of terrorist and you're looking at them as like somebody that's lost their mind. You go on Facebook and there's nothing but keyboard warriors that are saying the most vile things to people. And it's almost to the point where I don't even want to get on there anymore. It's depressing. It's overwhelming. I mean, there's something has taken place. 
think of the early Christians. I mean, what happened to them was even worse than that. They lost their jobs. They were unable to buy and sell. Their neighbors uh, had nothing to do with them. Then they started facing overt persecution. The early church faced persecution to the fact that they commanded their leaders, not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. They publicly flogged them. And then Stephen died. And then Paul went out on this just scorched earth kind of motif trying to bring Christians in, and many of them, I'm sure, were put to death. And It's much worse than it is now. But as an early Christian, you're discovering that you're facing rejection, you're facing persecution, and then you meet someone else who has the same experience that you had. Someone else who was walked in darkness, and now the blinders came off and they saw the light. Someone who had this common bond with, like a, like a kindred spirit that was just as faithful to the Lord as you are, had faced rejection from their family like you did, can actually identify with the persecutions of Christ. If they've done this to the master, why do you not think they will do to the servants of the master? And then you're experiencing that and you realize that I'm not alone here. There are other people that feel just like I do. But those people, because of our common bonds and our common scars and our common spirit that we have in us, we bond together as a community and that community turns into a family. And then the church is born where it's this mystical, spiritual entity where Political affiliations don't matter. The amount of money that you make doesn't matter. What side of the track you live on doesn't matter. The fact is we have Christ. And because we have Christ and they have Christ, that makes us more than just work buddies or more than Facebook friends. It makes us family. Family. Back during the promise keeper heyday, uh, there was a lot of racial tension going on when we lived down in LaGrange, Georgia, not 40 miles from uh, South Atlanta. Promise Keeper was, was coming, and this was in the late 90s, and they were talking about racial reconciliation. So they had this, this meeting of all the local pastors. And the town of LaGrange is a typical southern mill town, and you know they have that section, and the other people have this section. And, and so we all met at this church. White pastors and black pastors, and everybody filled in, and there was a line right down the middle of the church, and all the white pastors sat over here, and all the black pastors sat over here because it was just comfortable. Nobody wanted it to happen that way. It just did. And, and a couple of the promise keepers, proponents got up and were telling us about racial reconciliation, and, and nobody really cared until this black pastor got up and he simply said this, and I'll never forget it. Have to understand the times that it was. And he said this. He says, if God is your father, I am your brother. <sighs> Absolutely. Doesn't matter how I was born. Doesn't matter how I view other people. If God is my father, then there's this community and this bond and this oneness that comes together of true believers, no matter where they go to church, no matter how they feel about issues, maybe we feel strongly about, no matter how much we differ in the way we worship and how we pray or what Bible translation we use or the music that we sing. The fact is, if God is their God, father and he is my father, then that makes us brothers. We are brothers in here. We are brothers with the true believers in the church down the street and the First Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Church, and, and there, we are brothers that come together. 
The early church had a much more difficult time with that because at Pentecost, you had all these people from all these different countries with all these different dialects. Acts chapter two lays that out for us. 3,000 of them got saved and there were racial barriers. There was language barriers. There was the fact some of them didn't want to go home because they now they had, they had met Christ and I don't know anything about this Jesus other than the fact that the Holy Spirit now lives in me. I need to be trained. I need to be discipled. There was a lot of, there was, there was, Hebrew Jews, there were Hellenistic Jews, there was a melting pot of people that the church did not segregate, that the church as a community realized with this common bond and this kindred spirit that together we can do anything. Much like the church today, right? Much like the impact the church makes on the world today. So I started asking some questions. I want to look at the book of Acts, which is the only account we have, except some of the letters of Paul, which deal with specific issues in various churches, mostly Gentile churches. I want to look at the book of Acts, and I want to see in Acts chapter or Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3 especially, what was the church like? What would it have been like for you and I to be part of that crowd that met together on that first Sunday after Pentecost, praising God? I mean, what was it like for them? What did they do? that we don't do that help them foster such an intimate bond, like this, this brotherhood. I mean, let's just be real honest. We have, we have Facebook friends, which are a bunch of people that we really don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I go, when I look on somebody's Facebook, uh, when I used to look on somebody's Facebook, I would look and I would see how many friends they have. So we have 26 common friends and they have 597 friends and I have 4,238 friends. That's because of the book that I wrote. And I don't even know more than 50 of them. Do you? Family members, some friends, people I knew, somebody I went to high school. And so we have those kind of friends. And then we have work friends. And work friends are always your tightest friends as long as you work there. But have you ever noticed that when you leave or they leave, it's like you hardly ever talk to them again? They've got another job. You've got another job. I'm staying here because you guys are my friends. Not until somebody leaves. And when they do, it's the, what brought us together. The job is no longer there. And we didn't take vacations together. We didn't go hunting or play golf together. You never came to my house. I never came to your house. I don't know the name of your kids. Our kids never even played together. We're not really friends. And then we have church friends. And if we're not careful, we bring the same attitude that we have in the work and in the neighborhood into church where we sit in the exact same place and we never fellowship with anybody else. And we've worked really hard over the last many years to try to give us every opportunity to foster that kind of fellowship beyond just coming on Sunday. And then you have family. And when it comes to family, it's like there's, there's something there. You're tighter with those people. Doesn't mean that you can always trust them. Jesus talked about the early church as this family of God, not, not a, a group of people that just come together for a shared experience where we try to learn something from the word of God, sing some songs we like, maybe have a program for our kids or Sunday school for us, but something different. The early church was able to foster this intimate bond that we seem to struggle with, and they viewed themselves as separate they lived in a hostile, repressive, persecuting culture like we do and like it's probably going to get worse. But they viewed themselves not as people of that culture, 
but they came as simply soldiers. They came as warriors. They came as, as pilgrims and sojourners. This is not my home. It's kind of like when an army goes to battle, when the Romans sieged Jerusalem for almost three years. I mean, they left their home and their family and their wives and kids, and they came and they slept in tents. And they didn't take baths as much as they would do at home. They didn't get to watch all the television shows they wanted to. And they were dirty and they were rough and they were just hanging around men. And they didn't complain about their, their upkeep or, or how nice their tent was because they had a task. And the task was to, to siege Jerusalem, to, to be a warrior. That's how God has called us to be as soldiers of light, going out into the darkness, not being so concerned about making a name for ourselves or making our home in this world, but going out and as ministers, as missionaries, as pilgrims and sojourners to be light in darkness. So I looked at the early church and I'm asking, we're going to talk more about what their worship service was like compared to ours next week. But how did they view themselves different than we view themselves today? Are there any things that they did different or maybe they did better than we do? Or are there things that we can learn from them? And the best way to answer that question is to simply say, did God bless that church? I mean, he either did or he didn't. And here's what we find. In Acts 17, 6, we've got this turmoil going on. They're trying to drag Paul and, and Barnabas up to, to face the judicial governmental tribunal at that time because of the message they're proclaiming. And when they couldn't do that, this mob came together and dragged up uh, Jason. And, and here's what they said. When they did not find them, Paul or Barnabas, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these are what these people are doing. Those who have turned this world upside down have come here too. Now, they were in a foreign land. They were in a foreign city. They were Jews in a Gentile Greek city at that time. And yet the people who hated them recognized that their message, the Holy Spirit living in them, the lives that they emanated, they were literally turning the world upside down because God was blessing that church in a powerful way, just like he's blessing the church today, right? Well, we're making an impact in a culture, aren't we? 19, June 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton, that a unborn child isn't a child and doesn't have individual rights until they're exited from the womb. Right now, it doesn't even matter if they're exited from the womb. If they're not wanted, if it's a partial birth abortion, it doesn't matter. And if by some chance in an abortion, by the grace of God, the baby is born alive outside of the womb, which now should give that child rights to life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness outside the womb. If the mother doesn't want the child, the doctors are prohibited from doing anything to keep that baby alive. And where have we been as the church? This is on our watch, on our watch, by the way. All of a sudden, what was one time deemed, deemed a mental disorder, 
by the American Psychological Association, which was one at one time looked down upon all of a sudden homosexuality and bestiality and all those kind of things. All of a sudden now has not only become in the forefront, it has become something the media and Hollywood promote as the proper lifestyle and the church has done nothing. But little by little, church by church, Christian by Christian, capitulate to the dark side because it's much easier to live that way. Here, they turn the world upside down because God must have been blessing in a tremendous way. Well, what was it about them? What characteristics did they have? What, what about their, their message and their lives commanded this kind of move of God? Was it the fact they all had seminary degrees? Was it the fact that they all you know, had PhDs or they pastored huge mega churches or they were on Oprah? What was it about them that God used in such a powerful way? Or what set them apart from others? Acts chapter 4. This is when they're punishing and chastising and bringing the boot of the government down on, on uh, Peter and John saying, you can't anymore preach or teach in the name of Christ. And they said, when they saw the boldness of Peter in the face of persecution, the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized these guys are uneducated, untrained men. There's nothing special about them that we as the elite feel so much more powerful than they are. We have the authority. They have nothing. But nevertheless, because they're untrained and they're uneducated, and yet they speak with such boldness, we marvel at that. We're amazed with that. What is it about them that is different from everybody else we've ever met? And it's simply this. They realized that they had been with Jesus. They had experienced Jesus. They had embraced Jesus. We have it better than that. We haven't been with Jesus. We have him through the Holy Spirit in us. We are saturated with Jesus. And yet the world doesn't say this about us. What is it about them? What is it about them that allowed them to forsake their security to the point of persecution. It doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter, you know, like I read to you some of the letters last week from the early church fathers who were facing persecution. The one from Tertullian said, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. Because it's like Nick said, you know, whatever you do to us, it doesn't matter. How can you threaten me with heaven? The early church. They all came together. Peter stood up, this man who denied Christ, who should be living in the shadows full of self-condemnation. Peter stands up, preaches a 297-word sermon, if you take out the Old Testament passages he quotes. 297 words. You can preach it in six minutes. And he preaches this in six minutes, confronting them, you who crucified the Christ, you who put together to put to death the Son of God. And it said, and those who gladly, excitedly, wondrously received his word were baptized, which was something that was an anathema to the Jews. Only proselytes were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. 120 people in the upper room waited for 10 days. Holy Spirit fell upon them for the first time ever. Peter preaches a sermon under the unction of the Holy Spirit that he just experienced 
minutes or hour and an hour before, and 3,000 people get saved. You and I have had the Holy Spirit ever since we came to faith in Christ. You ever had something like this happen? You ever heard of something like this happening? Well, yeah, I think it happened like in South Africa one time a long time ago, but, uh, but I wasn't there. And, and, and we've got to the point where we don't even share our faith. We don't even tell people about the Lord because if we do, they'll look down upon us. They'll, they'll say bad things about us on Facebook. They'll deplatform us from their platforms. They'll cancel us in this cancel culture. This church didn't live that way because they didn't care about the persecution. They cared about pleasing the Lord. And even back then, everything was about the Holy Spirit. Everything was about this, this essence of who the Holy Spirit was. We find in John chapter 14, for the first time, Jesus teaches them about the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, like in John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, people born of the Spirit, I don't know what that means. You know, in John chapter 1, he talks about people born of the Spirit. He never explains that. I don't know what that means. You go through a couple places in John and some of the other gospel accounts, and he talks about the Holy Spirit and the people born of the Spirit, but he never actually explains who the Holy Spirit is until he gets to John 14. Do you remember? We spent a lot of time studying this about two years ago. And he says, you know, I will go to my father and I will have him send me another helper, another paraclete, another one who comes alongside. And the word another means one of the exact same. I will have him send me to you and the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I will not leave you as orphans because I'm going to send you someone who will be in you. He will teach you all things. The early church understood about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter one, verse number five, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse number eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Chapter two, the Holy Spirit does come. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking the word of God in a profound way. And then at the very end of, of Acts chapter two, when um, Peter is bringing his message to a close, he said, verse number 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Gosh, how non-politically correct is that? You, blood is on your hands, you crucified. He has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive your best life now. No, you shall receive eternal life. No, you shall receive a place in the mansion that Jesus is providing for you, a dwelling place in Acts or in John chapter 14. No. All those things are wondrous, but what he said is you shall receive what we got. You shall receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and to all your children and to all who are far off and as many as our Lord God will call. And we as Christians today are afraid of him because he's been mischaracterized. We're afraid we'll be mischaracterized. Or we're entrepreneurs. We're people that have a vote. We call our own shots and the thought of us surrendering our personal sovereignty to God, the Holy Spirit, who we can't see or hear or taste or touch, 
or even Jesus describes him as wind. For us doing that to him so he'll take us and use us however he wants to is frightening. And so therefore we spend all our time talking about God the Father on Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, Jesus reveals to his father, or Jesus, the guy that walks the trails of Galilee, the movies that are made out of him, but the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, we're afraid of that. And we wonder why church is different today than it was back then. So what was their church like? I mean, if their church was a certain way, especially the community that they formed, shouldn't we kind of be the same way too? In other words, if if they were like this and God left it in his word for us to to be a prototype or an example for us, and we see how God blessed in incredible ways, then we look at how we do church and we see he's not blessing like he did back then. And we're kind of struggling. And most of you, if I asked you again, on your spiritual life, your scale from one to 10, 10 being the closest you've ever been to the Lord, most of us will say we're something less than that. How is that possible? If he promises us his abundant life in Christ, I can guarantee you it wasn't that way in the book of Acts. So we asked some questions. What was their community like? What was their worship service like? Is their worship service like our worship service? Because our worship services are pretty much the same anywhere you go in America. Everybody comes in and the place is set up like a lecture. It's set up so that the pastor, the clergy, the man, holy hired man does all the heavy lifting and he preaches a message. And we basically listen to that. Or the praise band is up here and kind of performs. And, and we're somehow responding like we would if we were at a concert or something of that nature. Maybe there's some responsive reading. Maybe there's the Lord's Supper that takes place once a month, once a year, once every Sunday. Maybe there's those small nuances but pretty much in our culture today, especially the larger churches, it's, not, it's all about coming and hearing the band. Again, I challenge you to do this. Go online and start looking at churches in any city you want in the United States. Look for a church that has over 1,000 people. You go on the website. They all look the same. And the pastor always looks the same. He's got to wear the skinny jeans. And the, the, uh, the, 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 what you're going to find on all the sliding pictures in the front is you're going to find somebody at a coffee bar. You're going to find somebody taking care of your kids. You're going to find four, four slides of the praise and worship band, the drummer, the guitar player, somebody doing something like this. And maybe you'll have the pastor standing there, not behind a pulpit, next to a lectern, you know, as a, as a communicator, not even a pastor anymore. That's what church is today. And we come and we enjoy it and it's really great. And some of the music is fantastic. And you know, some of the speakers are really incredible. And we, we get affirmed and we go outside and that's it. Is that what they did in the early church? When they all got together, did they have a praise band? Did they set up like this? I mean, I mean, how was it? One of the things we're going to talk about last week, one of the things that happened in the early church is exactly what Nick did today. Thank you for that. I mean, it was such a blessing that hey, I, I, God has laid something on my heart and everyone has a word and a testimony and a prophecy and a song. And I, and I need to share something with you. Thank you for that. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about next week. It's not a group of people who do everything and we just take it in. It's a community 
where every one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone is affirmed by everybody else by the sharing and the, the intimacy and the prayer and the blessings that take place. So there's some things the early church did that we don't do. Are there some things that we uh, do that they never did? Have we somehow added to the worship experience to make us more like what we like, what, what we want? Or is, it, or, is it, or, is there, or is there a guideline here? Is there, is there something we need to do? And, and if it is, if we have added things to the worship of the Lord that we never see in Scripture, why do we start doing that? Did it make it easier? Did it allow us to detach from it? Could our churches grow uh, larger because of that? Or if we discover some things that they did that we don't do today, why did we quit? Well, the reason is usually because we didn't want to do it anymore. We didn't feel comfortable anymore because after all, it's, it's all about us. So I want you to look at Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to be able to go into this in great detail. But in Acts chapter 2, it begins the story. It doesn't end it, but it begins the story of what life was like in the early church. We sing songs about being the family of God or doing life together is the mantra for a lot of churches, which means you don't come on Sunday, only you go into a small group. You sit in anonymity in somebody else's house and watch somebody else on a video teach you something that you really haven't studied yourself. But for them, it was being a family of God were not just words, but it was in real life. One of the things I've noticed is that for most of us, when we come to faith in Christ, what Christ, what we want him to do is to make our life better. In other words, if I have decided that I want to be a, a physician, okay, then I'm now a Christian. And so God has made it easier for me to follow my goals, to do the things that I want to do. I want to marry this woman. I want to live in this house. I want to finish my school here. I want to work here. I want to make that much money. And so God, I'm now asking you to bless all the things that I want to do because my self-worth is tied up in who I am out there rather than whose I am in here. When the early church got saved, it wasn't, God bless me with what I want to do. It was, I don't want to do anything. God, you show me exactly what I need to do. I know I need to work to support my family and pay my bills, but this world is not my home. What I'm interested in is being faithful to your commandments to do the things that you want to do because my trust is not in people. My trust is in you who live in people. Make sense? We've lost that. And so Jesus becomes something, someone who seasons our life and makes me a better what I want to be. And if you'll ever study the Keswick movement, if you'll study the, the deeper life movement, if you'll study the great missionary movements of the 1800s where these people would just hear a message, go into all the world. And that's exactly what they did. They went to China and Africa and places like that. If you'll read those messages, you'll find that those people said, God, everything that I want to do doesn't matter. It's what you want me to do, and I'm willing to sacrifice everything for you. The church today, many of us, including myself, are willing to sacrifice whatever really doesn't cost me much for him because the rest of it belongs to me. They were 
committed to the things that re really matter and not the things of the world. When they got together and talked, I don't think the conversation was about how much money we make or the sales that we got or the car we're buying or come out and look at my new vehicle. I think the conversations they had were things around the Lord because they're in his house. They're commissioned for, for his task. They have been bought from the slave market of sin. They've been redeemed from hell and death for a purpose greater than what they wanted to do. You know, well, if I give my life to the Lord, he'll always have me do something I don't want to do. Why, Why would we always assume that? When I was growing up, that's exactly, when I was growing up, the worst place to go was Africa. You know, it was like all the missionaries had to go to Africa, you know? And so if I give my life over to be a missionary, it means God's going to send me to Africa and I don't want to go to Africa. Well, why would he, why would you think he would do that? What kind of man does that? Send your life to the Lord. You may find he has you be a missionary right where you're at. But the goal is not how much we accumulate. The goal is how much we give away. Jesus said that he will meet our needs. My needs. My needs are far less than my wants. Aren't yours? Note the progression. Note what happens here. Note when God chooses to move. Always proceeds. First one always comes first and precedes the other. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says in verse 39, for the promises to you and your children and to all who are far off and as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, would you act like believers? This is a sanctification process when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Not the merciful spirit, not the graceful spirit, not the long suffering spirit, but the Holy Spirit. Be saved from this perverse generation, a verse that can be repeated today. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day, just that day, day one, there were added about 3,000 souls to them. What did they do? We've got no quarterlies, no Sunday school materials. We've got no Christian podcasts. We've got no mega churches. We've got no Christian radio, no concerts we can go to. There's no pure flicks. There's no... Uh, Christian movies, there's, there's no God is dead, not dead. There's none of that stuff. I mean, what do we do? How do we disciple these people who just came from in faith? They were having a hard time even studying their dialect. Most of them, probably many of them are away from home, a limited resources. They only have the money that they have right now. Most of them are probably poor. These aren't, you know, mega business owners. What do we do? How do we disciple them? What does the church focus on to have God move then like he moved, I mean, now like he moved then? And it's really simple. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. This is what the 120 original did. That's the, that's the 11. Judas is now gone and the entourage that's followed him. And then 3,000 new converts. And then I look at this and I think they continued steadfastly. Some translations are devoted themselves. But are these the things that the church devotes itself today? Well, again, the church is an accumulation, a conglomerate of individuals. So a church is made up of all of us. 
So in order for the church to devote itself to something, it means we as individuals have to devote ourselves to the same thing. When we come together as a congregation, by definition, if we as individuals are devoted to something, then the church is devoted to something. So the question is, Steve, what are you devoted to? Are these the things that your life indicates that you're devoted to? They continued steadfastly. The word means to endure. Even when things get tough, Nick, you brought that up. I'm just not, I'm so tired, I don't really care, but nevertheless, I need to do this, so I am. I'm not, I'm getting devotions, I'm rolling my eyes, and my kids rebuked me from rolling my eyes. I can't tell you how many times that happened with me. To endure, to tarry, to remain, to cleave faithfully to someone. They continued steadfastly. It's also translated to devoted themselves or continually devoted themselves. Day by day, week by week, hour by hour, conversation by conversation, they devoted themselves of the other world and not the things that they had devoted themselves before, which are the things in this world. They had devoted themselves in the apostle doctrine teaching, understanding the word of God into, into fellowship, which is number two, building a body of believers, something that the current powers to be are doing everything they can to make sure that we don't have fellowship. We can't meet together. When we do meet together, we have to wear masks and we have to stay six feet apart. And so therefore the church now has become content with watching on a YouTube video or Zoom or something like that people performing for them, preaching and singing for them and the comfort of their home and their pajamas and thinking that is church, thinking that is fellowship. The church means a called out assembly. An assembly cannot be done by Zoom. An assembly is done face to face, people together. They devoted themselves into teaching of God's word. We'll talk about all this later. And the fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers, S on the end. One of the things they constantly did was pray together. When it talks about the breaking of bread, that can mean meals that they took together. It can also mean celebrating the Lord's Supper. It probably means both. They constantly, continually devoted themselves to these four things. Question that was asked me by the Lord, Steve, what are you devoting yourself to? What should you be devoting yourself to? As we see the world beginning to kind of cave in, what are you going to vote, devote yourself to? There was, a, uh, uh, there was a woman that was punched in the face on Wednesday. You may have seen it in the news. She's about 50 years old. And I actually watched the clip and she wasn't yelling or anything. She was just there. The police had a barricade up here and there's a bunch of Antifa people and she was a Trump person and they're having an animated discussion about her and this kid about 25 years old hauls off and just punches her right in the face. Bam! Just, just nails her. And uh, she falls down and a couple of other guys around there grabbed the guy and they brought him up to the cops. And when they got to the cops, they said, hey, he punched this lady. Cops sprayed everybody. They weren't really interested in that. And so they went back and they interviewed the lady. And the lady has a picture and her nose looks like it's broken and there's blood all coming down her face and somebody's filming her and she's basically saying, you know, I came here just to support Trump and, you know, I wasn't, I don't know why this happened to me. And, and okay, she didn't give her name or anything like that. 
Well, her daughter saw that. And her daughter says, hey, this is the lesbian daughter of that crazy Trump supporter who got punched in the face. Just so that you'll know, this is her name. This is her address. This is who you need. She doxed her on that. Both she and her husband and their aunt and uncle who were at the, um, who were at the rally has lost their jobs. Turned in by a family member or something like that. It's crazy times in which we live right now. There's got to be a community where we love each other and support each other by a common bond that we have, irrespective of how we feel about different things. And that common bond has got to be stronger than family. Jesus said that one of the signs of the end times would be the love of many would grow cold and members of your own family will become your enemies, not because you went to a Trump rally, but because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you prepared for that? Then you better get ready. And we're not talking about buying beans and bullets and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about getting ready spiritually, getting ready to, to accept that persecution as the brand mark of the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to shine your light even brighter as the world around us gets even darker. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And then there's one of these small words that you always want to circle. It's a time word, and it's then. It means after that. It means because of that, this was a um, result of that. Then, after that, fear, godly reverence and fear, the fear of God came upon every soul. Every means exactly what it says, all, without any loss, all. And many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. So what was the church like? What was the community like? You've told us the fun stuff. How did they live the next day and the day after that and weeks after that? What was it like? Now, all believers were together. Well, what, like, like together like on Sunday, together like morally, together like they hold on to the same political views. We hate Nero or whoever was, would later be the emperor. I mean, what are we talking about here? They were together. To what extent were they together? Well, they had all things in common. So what does that mean? Does that mean like stuff they give to the church, like, like a tithe? It's like a tithe that they all have in common and they all decide how their tithe is supposed to be distributed among the community. Does it mean, I mean, what does it mean exactly? I mean, I would like it to mean a whole lot of different things than what it really means. So what does it mean? To what extent did this church have all things in common? Well, they sold their possessions and their goods. Those are two totally separate words, possessions and goods. Possessions are fixed assets like land, businesses, and houses. Goods are tangible goods like clothes and furniture and stuff of that nature. They jettison everything they owned. Everything. Who are these people? Everything they owned. They sold their houses. They sold all their goods. I don't need that anymore. I've enlisted in a soldier in the army of the Lord. And they divided them among all, even the people that seemed like they were takers and not givers, as anyone had need. Really? What happened then? Did God bless this? Yeah, because they continued daily. What about their jobs? I'm sure they got jobs somewhere. 
Somebody has to pay the bills. And so they're working their jobs. But after their jobs, that time belonged to the Lord. They daily, they met with one accord and one spirit in the temple. But they just didn't meet in their own little homes. They didn't meet in the little huddles. The temple, that's where all the Jews are. That's the Jewish high point of their religion. The Jews can kill them. The Jews can persecute them. And they did. And so they're taking the gospel message living in a community separated from the culture to the throne room of the evil at that time, to the, the temple itself, proclaiming the goodness of God. Who are these people? How did they, when they suffered persecution at the temple, how did they build themselves back up? Did they go home and eat a big meal, have a couple shots, uh, watch something they shouldn't watch on television? I mean, what did they do? Well, they broke bread from house to house. In other words, they, they continually encouraged each other. Now, obviously, some of the people who still in Jerusalem still had houses. Some of the people that got there didn't. They sold their houses. But nevertheless, everyone opened up their house to the proclamation of the gospel, just like we do today, right? They ate their food with gladness and simplicity or our single focusedness of heart. They praised God and they had favor with everybody, all the people lost and saved. And look what God did. God added to the church daily those who were being saved. Do you know why? Because the gospel went out daily, those who were being saved. We've been brought up to think that it's not really our job to share the gospel daily. What we'll do is we'll invite somebody to come to some event at church, and then once they get here, somehow it's, it's somebody else's job to lead them to Christ because we have to build a, real, a, a relational bridge to someone. We can't just tell them about Jesus. We have to you know, hang around with their family and friends for 14 years until we've developed that relationship to be able to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where did that come from? Not from this church. Not from the book of Acts. So be honest. How would you describe a group of people like this? We would say they're whacked. They're just messed up. Matter of fact, we would call them extremists. Radicals. Fanatics. Revolutionary. Activists. Zealots. We would have all these negative terms that we would place upon someone who was more committed to Jesus than we are. That's what a fanatic is. Someone who loves the Lord more than you. Makes you feel uncomfortable when you're around them because they go to a restaurant, they view the restaurant not as a time to get a good meal, but a time to maybe to meet other people. I've got an interaction with a waitress here, so you know, I'm going to tip her well, but not only that, I also want to tell her about the Lord Jesus Christ. I may not see her again. God may have placed me here for that very reason. No, can't you just eat the meal and quit embarrassing me? It embarrasses you when I share my faith. Yes, you're such a fanatic. No, I think they're real Christians. I think it makes us weenies. Or as Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, girly men. I don't know if you can even say that anymore, can you? Girly men. This is what made this church different. This is the kind of church the Lord laid out for us that he wants us to be. I mean, think when you saw those people from the outside, I don't know who these guys are, but I can tell they've been with Jesus. They became what they were because they have an, a living encounter with God. That God actually changed their life. 
It's the same living encounter we claim to have had with him. Yet their results is different than ours. And I don't know why that is. Our encounter with God leaves us voluntarily stunted in our spiritual life. Their encounter with God changed everything. And the difference is not the Holy Spirit. And the difference is not the environment they were in because they were under a, a repressive regime and we're moving into that direction too. Or maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just been so easy for us that we don't really care that much anymore. So what do we do? How do we recover what we have lost? How do we become Christians that become a church like this? Is it possible to be different? Listen very carefully. The answer is yes, absolutely. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, what you've done in the past, how you failed him in the past, what you feel embarrassed about in the past is in the past. I shared with you a couple weeks ago, his mercy is new every morning. Remember, every morning we got an opportunity to start fresh. But it takes a commitment on our part. It takes a, uh, a recognition of who we are and who he is. So I want to close with this. This is uh, the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. He began by telling them all the stuff that they were doing. I know your faith and that you don't tolerate this and you're really good guys and you're doing all the things that you should be doing. I'm really proud of you for, for what's going on. You just hang tight, guys. You know, you're doing okay. And then he says this, nevertheless, in spite of all the stuff that you were doing right, that you feel comfortable about, nevertheless, I have this against you. My goodness, I would never want the Lord to say that against me, would you? I have this against you. Well, what? Haven't we worked really hard? Yes, yeah, not about work. It's why you're doing the work. You have left or literally abandoned and forsaken your first love. Conviction hits like you did with me. All right, Lord, what do I do? Or how do I correct this? I mean, what do we do different? It's really simple. You remember. You sit back and you think. Think about the last time you were at 10. Think about the last time you were close to the Lord. Think about the last time that the God allowed spiritual fruit in your life to the point that your branches were just bowed down by the weight of it. Think about the time that you were so enamored with him that it just like like nick shared that i'm just reading an account in scripture that i read over and over again and it just brought me to tears to the point that i'm weeping uncontrollable because god is so good you're so gracious i remember what that was like when the voices i listened to were the voice of him and not the voice of the world telling me things i need to do and not do remember all right lord i remember Remember where you've fallen. Remember how the world got your attention more than him. Remember when you placed other things as idols in your life, your success and your job and your house and your retirement or whatever it is, your children, your, the fact that other people care about you, the narcissistic attitude that most of us have. I'm, I'm place something on Facebook and I'm going to post this on here and check 17 times to see if everybody likes it. <sighs> Why? Remember from where you have fallen. And then repent. Okay. Lord, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I've done that. I can't believe I let the world creep in so much. I can't believe I've forsaken you that way. It is true that I have forsaken. I've walked away. I've wandered away from my first love. And Lord, I'm repenting of that. And I'm asking you to forgive me of that. And God will. 
But the next part is yours. This is the sanctification part. After you repent, do the things that you did when you were closest to him. Do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly. Scary word. And remove your lampstand unless you repent. You repent, and then you, you ask the Lord to help you be the person that you once were, that he wants to start as a base to make you better so that your family and friends will look at you and go, I don't understand. You know, he's a, not real smart. He didn't, didn't go to college, didn't have a seminary degree. He doesn't know Hebrew and Greek. He kind of stumbles his word out. He even has a lisp and a speech impediment and can't pronounce English words like me. But there's something about him. And you know what it is? He's been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus and he radiates Christ. The next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what their actual worship service was like. And I think you'll be shocked what it shares in scripture and how far we've missed the mark on that. You know, when it comes to music, we focus on praise. Um, but in the scripture, it was worship. And there's a difference between those two. You know, to foster a, an atmosphere of worship uh, when we all come together and then to actually worship. If, you, if you've never worshiped alone, you'll never worship in here. But you go worship alone with the Lord and then bring that in here and worship is contagious. Can lost people worship? No, but they can see you worship. And when that happens, it changes everything. We're going to talk about that next week and see if there's some things we've added in our culture to church that maybe works against that or some things we need to incorporate back in to that. We're also going to see what the job of the Holy Spirit is regarding worship back then and also now today. And I, I promise you, it's rocked my world. It's changed a lot of the ways I view things, and I can't wait to share it with, with you next week. But here's your assignment. I want you to take everything in your life that you value, your job, your money, your position, your hobbies, your, your house, you know, whatever it is that you, that you value, that we spend more time doing than we do spending time with him, that we're more devoted to my wife and my children than I am the things of God. And I want you to ask the Lord, will you show me clearly what I believe? It's like my mission statement. It's like a grid that all the things that I value have to filter through over the next couple of years. I've shared mine with you. This is just mine, not yours. I believe this is true. And because I believe this is true or could possibly happen, it kind of changes the way I view things. It sure, certainly has a short-term view of things rather than a long-term view of things. And so therefore, come up with like your own mission statement, your own grid as you see things beginning to happen. And then filter every decision that you make through that grid Lord, how will it help me grow spiritually? How will it help me get closer to you? How will it help me minister to and protect those around me when things happen I can't control? Amen? Let me pray.